Morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. Welcome to the gathering. We're glad to spend it together, eh? Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful May, May Sunday. A um, couple quick announcements. Uh, one, we need some help. That's not the end of the sentence. We need some help in Kidport. We need some help uh, in the tech booth. And so if, if you're feeling compelled to maybe, I've got an extra hour and 15 minutes every single uh, month, maybe you could step in. We especially need help in our grapple space and so if you're excited about maybe hanging out with middle schoolers for an hour and 15 minutes one Sunday a month um, we promise uh, you will walk away alive that's all we can promise though um, so if, if that's something you're excited about uh, one, once a month we could use two female volunteers in our grapple uh, on our grapple team we could also use somebody who has experience with pro presenter um, for the summer and so if you want to help make the magic happen on the screen back here we could use your help uh, once a month with that. Outside of that, we've got some fun stuff going on. Our Love Changes Lives mission is focused on the Benton Harbor Street Ministry and the work that they're doing to reach the unreachable in Benton Harbor. Um, and then on 
January, excuse me, January, June 4th, our seniors are graduating from high school. Can you believe that we're, that's, yes. <laughs> Unbelievable that we're already there. Congratulations to the class of 2023. If you, are, if you are connected to a graduate or are a graduate, we would love to celebrate with you and, and recognize that on June 4th. So you can reach out to Jen Meyer um, and she'll have some information uh, to exchange with you on that. So other than that, have a wonderful Sunday morning. I am because I feed you and I clothe you and I pay the mortgage. Whoa, pretty sure old dad deserves a shout out right about now. Phil. Sorry, should have taken the temperature of the room first. What's up? Luke well, and Manny barged into our room while we were changing the little purse. Can I just say, in Europe, this would be no big deal. Yeah, you can see me in my underwear whenever you want. Here, I'll make it even. No, hey, Luke. Mom, Luke, 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 now grow up a little. I need things to start changing around here or I will change things, okay? There will be no more TV and no internet and no whatever else I can think of. May I have a word with you, Phil? I'd rather not. What was that? 
Nothing. Phil, you saw me out behind my back. No, it's just that sometimes you can get a little intense and I feel like I need to swoop around to let the kids know they're still loved. I could kick you. Honey, these are just the parts that we're playing. Am I wrong or has it been working? I feel like it's been working. I'm tired of being the bad cop. You need to discipline them sometime and let me swoop in with all the love. Shouldn't we just stick with the stuff we're good at? Oh my God, this bathroom is disgusting. The girls told me they would clean it days ago. I can't yell at them about it one more time, Bill. You handle it. I would, but I promised Luke and Manny I'd take them go-karting for their good report cards. What was good about Luke's report card? He didn't lose it. Let me take them. Yes, let me take them. You stay here, hound the girls about cleaning up this mess, and I will take Luke to do something fun. But I want to go go-karting. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. This is happening. Boys! Hey, guys, guess who's taking you go-karting today? Hey, why? Are we in trouble? No, we're in trouble. Today's just all about having fun. And you know what? Go-karting's just the beginning. What else are we doing? Whatever you want. I want to bring Dad. Well, tough. You can't. He's doing something else. Goodbye. We will be back in a few hours. Oh, well. Where are you guys going? I am taking Alex to the movies, and then I'm going to the mall. Oh, fun. That's just like fun, doesn't it, Phil? I'm not much of a shopper, but it would depend on them. Oh, uh, girls, how about you clean your bathroom before you go, huh? Really help your mom out. Oh, no, it's not about what mom wants. Your mom is cool, very cool with whatever. It's about what dad wants. Dad wants to go go-karting. I would really like it if you would clean your bathroom. But my movie! Why do we have to do it now? Because Claire says so. Because I say so. And because I'm your dad. And I'm older than you, and I call the shots around here, right? Yes, you do. This is so unfair. Come on, guys, let's go have some fun. Ow, you're hurting me. Oh, you're fine. Have fun, guys. Let's go, let's go, let's go. So, how does this usually start? Good morning, good morning, Storyline. Uh, it's so good to be together. Uh, Lisa and I used to watch Modern Family all the time it was like one of our favorite shows because for so many reasons but one of them is it was just so it was so insightful it got so many things about family life right and i think this scene is yet another one of those you can see the confusion on the kids faces when the parents try to switch roles right like there's like well, why are you going go-karting are we in trouble like so Counselors actually have a name for what is happening here in this scene. It's called systems theory or family systems theory. And when a therapist gets involved with a family that's struggling, often the work begins by identifying who is playing what role in the system. And there are some common roles um, that may be familiar to some of us and see, it, see if some of these resonate with you or, or your family. It seems like most families have like the hero or the golden child, the saint, maybe they're called. Um, often they have a troublemaker, scapegoat, or black sheep. Um, there could be a lost child. Many families have a peacemaker, mediator, and a clown or a mascot. Some of these are sounding familiar, right? Other uh, popular roles are caretaker, doer, enabler, and of course, the martyr. You have to have that, it seems like, in most families. But essentially, what systems theory um, is describing is something that teachers, every teacher, sees in every class they've ever had. Historians observe in political parties. Coaches experience on teams. Sociologists discover in organizations. And it's this. Human beings are wired for stories. That means that we can't help but see ourselves, see all of life as a story, and see ourselves in it. And consequently, what that means is that we search to find our part to play. If you've ever known someone and they're one way at work, and then one way when they're home, and then one way when they're friends, that's what's going on. They're taking on different roles in different places. So a huge part of life, discovering our role in the larger story, is one of, if not the, project of life and this happens in us it happens to us it happens around us and within us and it happens in our families in classrooms on teams at church in the workplace 
we look for our part. We seek out our role. Now, last week, we talked about the power of limitation, of how mothers choose limitation to give birth to something beautiful, and how God in Jesus has also taken on limitation to create something good for others. And judging from the enormous number of emails that I received this week, there was something about that that really struck a chord with us. And I was thinking about that this week as I was preparing for this, for this morning, just wondering why was that? Why did this, this idea of people purposely taking on limitation in all these different ways in life, and even God taking on limitation, why did that strike such, such a chord? And I think the reason is because a story is another version or form of limitation. Like last week, we talked about children playing, board games, all games really, sports. It's, it's limitation. And there is a power to limitation. There's power also, transfor transformative power in a story. For almost 200,000 years, anthropologists now know that human beings have been sitting around fires. And what do we do? Now, I think this is the reason that we're just captivated by flames. It's like built into us. We love to watch fire. We love to sit in circles around fire. Why? To listen to stories. And guess what? We're still doing it today. It's just a different fire. And you know what? You're doing it right now. That's what we're doing. We gather together to hear stories. Now, one way to describe what Jesus in his gospel of grace is all about, his good news that God is in fact good, that God is on our side, that God is gracious, that he longs, one way to describe that would be to say that God longs for us to find our role in his story because that's where the best life is found even when a particular chapter of our life is far from the best that we can imagine. As a teacher, I learned very early on the power of stories, that stories work much better than explanations. So I worked really hard every day to construct lessons that were embedded in a story. A couple of months ago, you may recall that we had an entire gathering based on the film Dunkirk. It was the World War II um, battle where the British army was surrounded by the Nazis. Well, I used to start my U.S. history class when we get to the World War II unit. I would start it with that story every year. And after that, my students were dialed in. Like they wanted to know everything about World War II because they were into the story. That is what was critical. As a parent, I saw the same thing. When our children were young, they were all about stories. When my daughter Jenna was little, I would put her to bed and she would ask me the same thing every night. Will you tell me a story? And it got to the place where we stopped even reading books. We, we made up our own story. And over the years, we created this ongoing and growing story that we loosely titled Somewhere Between Once Upon a Time and happily ever after. And Jenna dreamed up this incredible list of magical characters. Most of them were talking animals. And she came up with names like Zumaruda, Pufflemumpkin, and Fuzzlewump. And there were all, I can't even remember all of them, but it was just like, I was like, she was, you know, three, four, five years old as we were, we kept telling this story. And it was just one thing after another. But the star of every chapter, of every scene, of every night, was the Princess Jenna Marie. That was the star of this story. And the, and, and the story usually involved a horse ride through a forest, some kind of daring rescue. Her older brother, Prince Jimmy, often made an appearance, not always in the most flattering way. But Princess Jenna Marie, she had to choose like which of her unbelievably beautiful and strong horses to ride. Lightning was one of her horses. Danger, thunder, storm. Jimmy, Prince Jimmy had one horse to choose from, Betsy. 
That's <laughs> and Betsy had like a, something wrong, not just not quite right. So Jenna made all of this up every night. It was like, she's like, will you tell me a story? And basically she would just unfold this story. She, what was she doing? She was looking for her place. She was, an, she was imagining her future. She was trying to figure out who she was, what she could do, what life is for. And now that I look back on it, she was also working out some serious sibling rivalry in these stories. But that's the power of story. Uh, that's the power of story. And, and I've been asked so many times over the years, like, where do we get the name storyline? Where did it come from? And, and early on, it really just came from this, we were just convinced that early on, early on and before we had a name, we were convinced that much of what has turned people off to God in faith is that we've lost touch with the mystery, the suspense, and the drama of the story of God and life. Too often, religion has reduced it to rituals, rules, and rote memory. But doctrines dislocated from mystery, traditions disconnected from something deeper, they, they're not a story. We can't find ourselves in that. And so it doesn't draw us in. It, it doesn't capture our imagination. And so we give religion a try, and then we just move on to the next fire because it doesn't draw us in. It's not a story. And the religious establishment to this day is absolutely befuddled as to why Amer the American church is shrinking at a rate of 50,000 people a week in America leave the church every week and it's been like that and it's all it is is accelerating my friend Jim actually just this week sent me yet another study about the accelerating mass exodus of Americans from the church what's going on at least part of it is this we have substituted the story of God for statements of faith and our role in, in God's story from what is supposed to be this risky, communal, essential mission to a list of do's and don'ts. We have lost God's storyline. And with it, our chance to find our part, to play our role, our chance to change, and consequently, the dynamic draw of the life of faith which is why I think it is so critically important for us to remember this is not how Jesus did it. Not at all. Jesus was a storyteller. Now, social scientists have studied stories and they've looked back on how stories are put together uh, through different societies and through, through, through different cultures. And they actually have a name for something that some people have called the overstory, other people have other names for it, but social scientists say there's a name for the story that we see ourselves in, and it's a phenomenon that they find in all societies, all cultures, throughout all of history, and they refer to it as meta-narrative. Meta-narrative. And meta-narratives are the big underlying foundational, like elemental parts and pieces, these stories that inform and that limit, as in focus and guide, the way that we think, what we see, and how we live. Uh, years ago, uh, I was at the economic club out at um, the college, and Gordon Brown was the former, the former prime minister of the United Kingdom, was speaking there. And uh, he gave voice to what I think is kind of the quintessential American meta-narrative. It was so great, I, I wrote it down, I've used this quote in my classes too. This is what he said that night. America is the greatest country in the world. This is the place all others want to come, where you go as far as your sweat and your talent can take you. And personally, I was like, wow, that's pretty good, I like that. And there are, of course, others who have a different story about America. Something like this. It's an empirical power motivated by greed and domination, exploiting the people of the world and the earth itself for its own selfish gain. Now, when you compare these two, 
meta-narratives, it's easy to understand whichever one of these you see yourself in will dramatically change the way you not only see your country, but your own future in it. And what would be the appropriate thing to work for or hope for, and actually even how to live within that system, within that story. That is the power of a meta-narrative. These are stories that inform, they are the story that inform all of our other stories and the possibility that we see within them. Now, the same is true for the stories that we believe about our families, our jobs, conservatives and liberals, Muslims and Lutherans, and of course, ourselves. We all have an underlying fundamental, elemental, foundational story, a meta-narrative about who we are. And most importantly, I think, this is also true for the story that we believe about God. But see, here's the thing. The stories that we hold on to hold on to us. We might not know it, we might not feel it or sense it in every moment of our life, but they do. And Jesus understood this, which is why he was constantly telling stories. In fact, the Bible says it like this. With many stories like these, Jesus presented his message to them, fitting the stories to their experience and maturity. He was never without a story when he spoke. I, I know that there are people who don't realize that. Like, the passing glance at Jesus is that he just, you know, told people what to do and what not to do. People would ask him, a, but that's not how it was. People would ask him a question, or they would make a comment about him or one of his followers, and he would launch into a story. There once was a woman who had ten coins. Somebody made a comment about one of his followers, and he said, his response was, there once was a man who had two sons. Somebody else asked him a question about, you know, what's the right way to live, and he said, there once was a rich man. These are actual quotes from Jesus answering a question. It almost makes you wonder if the answer is a story. You see, we, we want to believe that we run our lives on ideas, like on information. You know, in some realms of life, follow the science. In other realms of life, you know, follow your beliefs. But we actually don't work like that. That isn't how our, we run our lives. Our lives run on stories, and no amount of information, fact, data, or doctrine, ritual, or tradition can work its way into our lives if they are separated from a narrative. They just won't. They just bounce right off us from a story we find compelling and we want to be part of. If, if, if we don't see that in a fact or a belief or in some, something that we learn even, if we don't see it as part of a compelling story we want to be a part of, it just bounces right off us. And this is why Jesus told stories because he knew that we all have a story about God, and that meta-narrative wasn't working. Well, all right. Now it's time for me to tell you all what you've done wrong since I last saw you. And don't try and hide because I'm Jesus. I will find you. Let's start with you, Peter. You lied to your mother the other day. Andrew, you said a naughty word when you hit your finger with the hammer. James, you laughed at him when he hit his finger. Moving right along, John, you drank too much wine the other night. Not way too much, just enough to make me angry. Matthew, we fell asleep in church, didn't we? Yes, we did. And Thomas, you were slow dancing a little too close with that girlfriend of yours. Let's see, and you, I forgot your name, so you're off the hook for now. Um, Philip, I saw you smoking a cigarette behind that big rock the other day. Thaddeus, I hate to say I saw you stick up your middle finger at someone who cut you off when you were riding your camel. 
Benjamin, you aren't wearing your WWJD bracelet. Jacob, I don't mind you saying my name, but not after you stub your toe. And Frank, you know what you did. I just can't repeat it because I'm Jesus. Alright, all you sinners, come with me. It's time to pay the piper. Man, it was only one cigarette. I heard that. Look at all these sinners. Alright, listen up. Listen to me. I'm Jesus. Listen to what I have to say. I have done many wonderful things. I have healed many people of diseases. I have performed many miracles so that I can tell you this. You're all evil. There is no hope. That's it. Thank you. I love it. Thank you, thank you.
Okay, my, my favorite line from that video, follow me, you sinners, it's time to pay the piper. <laughs> now, that's pretty close to the story that I believed about God growing up, and I know that it's close to the story that many people do. And if that's our meta-narrative, we will never be open to God. Why would we be? And we will certainly never be open to believe that the way of faith, like this song is talking about, like, you know, washing in the water or having some preacher man, like, it's, that's never going to work. It's never going to save my soul. It's hopeless. No one is going to take up my soul because God isn't good. And it's just way too, all too common of a narrative about God. So Jesus told stories because he knew this. This was the pervasive way that think people thought about God in his time, and I think it's still true to this day. So he told stories to try to fix or repair our story of God. Now, um, scholars call the stories that Jesus told parables. It's a certain kind of parable. But I think one of the best explanations for what Jesus is trying to do is actually in the Bible itself. And the Bible explains it like this. He, God, explains it like this. He, God, made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his kind intention, which he purposed in Jesus. That is the summing up of all things in Jesus. Now this word summing up can be translated a number of different ways if you look at different translations of the Bible, but I think the best way is a translation that says it this way, retelling. God is retelling the story of all things in Jesus. Now that, I think, gets us to lean in. That is, because that in and of itself is a story. What is God up to? And one of Jesus' most famous stories, it's now called the parable of the lost sheep. And in it, what he's going to do is to attempt to do just this. He's going to try to retell the story of God, the story of life, and the story of our lives, I think, in a beautiful way. And this is how that story goes. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Very short, it's, that, that's it. That's the whole story. And the first thing to mention about this parable is that it's misnamed. Je, uh, Jesus did not title it the parable of the lost sheep. And here's why. He would never have picked that. Because all sheep are lost. There is no such thing as a lamb that knows where it's at, okay? It's important to remember, remember now that parables are not about trying to tell us how to act, what to do, what not to do. Parables are always a way of retelling what God is like, what life is for, and our lives, okay? And like all stories, if you talk to an English teacher, like all stories, stories could be taken apart. They have parts and pieces. They have a setting, a character, a plot, rising action, and the same is true for, for parables, and when we take one of Jesus' parables apart, when we take them all apart, frankly, we keep finding these same elements. They retell us who God is, who we are, and what life is about, what life is for. And then there's always one other element. There's a surprise. One way to think about it is, if you hear one of Jesus' parables and you're not surprised, you're not getting it. Okay? So what does this story tell us about God, life, and our lives, or ourselves, all right? So first one, who is God in this story? Well, clearly, he is the shepherd. Now, what do we learn about the shepherd? And this is the first and the most important thing I think we learn about God. God is a seeker. God is a seeker. Now, the apparent audience for this story, Jesus launches into this story because really... Um, 
people thought he was speaking to his followers who were kind of over here. You almost have to picture the setting of Jesus telling this story. Um, and his friends were widely viewed by the religious people over here as sinners. Like, Jesus tells this story as a response that one of these religious people, this kind of snotty thing that they said about his followers, and Jesus launched into this story about a lost sheep. And so it's, it's you know, supposedly a story for his followers who were like hard-living fishermen, like political outcasts, thieves, prostitutes. It was... It was, you know, a hodgepodge of people that were following him. And so he was supposedly speaking to his friends, but this story is really for the religious people. He's wanting them to overhear this. He's saying this loud enough so that they can hear. And they were all there to judge. So notice that the shepherd is not just a seeker. He doesn't scold the sheep when he finds it. He's not interested in blaming or judging. Just finding, and then joy. God is joyful. He celebrates when he finds the lost sheep. And here's the surprise about who God is. God is reckless, like reckless with his search and his seeking. He's reckless with his love for us. You see, when Jesus asked the question, wouldn't you leave the 99 to find the one? Because we aren't shepherds, or I don't know of any that go to storyline, uh, we think the answer is, of course we would. And shepherds are like, that would be stupid. You would never leave the 99 to find the one unless there were two of you. Because the original hearers who were familiar with sheep and shepherds would have been struck that this is crazy. It's reckless. No, you would not leave the 99 to go find the one. Why? Because the second you leave the 99, you now have 99 lost sheep. All sheep are lost. If you are a sheep and you're not with the shepherd, you're lost, okay? Lost, which leads us to this. Who are we in this story? And it's pretty clear that we are sheep. We are sheep. Now, what does this tell me about me? Like, how is Jesus trying to change my story of myself to retell it well as a lamb i have two options in this story i can be number one i can be one of the 99 you know like with the crowd or i can be the one like and those two options are really just a fancy way a subtle way uh, uh, another way of saying there are two ways to be lost because all sheep are lost. And it really comes down to ignorant or alone. See, the in crowd, the 99, they're looking around and there's sheep everywhere, right? And they're going, what shepherd? We don't need a shepherd. Like, I'm fine, are you fine? I'm not lost. I'm, no, we're all, here. we're all here, everybody's here. Everybody's doing it, right? I'm not lost, are you? How, how can we be lost if there's so many of us here, right? Jesus is telling us that they're, they're just ignorant. They are lost. They just don't know it. Because all sheep without a shepherd are lost. Or we could be alone. Like, I know I'm lost because I'm by myself, clearly, right? I seem to be, and maybe you felt like this in life, I seem to be the only one asking this question or noticing this. And you just... What the crowd is at, where everybody's headed, it just doesn't work for you. And so you just wander away. You, you move on, you know, from the ignorant crowd, but you're still lost, and you know it, and there's nothing you can do about it. Either way, okay, either way, all sheep are lost without a shepherd. That seems to be what Jesus is saying. But that's not all that we are. In this story, Jesus is retelling us something about ourselves because we are also sought after. We are also being pursued. And here's the surprise. I don't find God. He finds me. I can't be fast enough, smart enough, 
good enough, rich enough, religious enough, accomplished enough to find God. All sheep are lost without the shepherd. Religion is nothing more than man searching for God. The gospel of Jesus, and we see it here in this story, is exactly the opposite. It is an incredible retelling of the story of God and life. The God of the universe is searching for us, for me and for you. All we can do is come out of hiding, come out into the open and be open to being found. When Jimmy and Jenna were younger, they not only loved stories, they loved to play hide-and-seek, like constantly it's what they wanted to do. Now, Jenna, was she's two years younger than Jimmy, and she was just terrible at hiding. I mean, just awful, you know, like this. You cover your face or head under a pillow, and she thinks, because I can't see you, you can't see me. And, of course, that's not how it works. I knew from the very beginning where she was, but, you know, I would count to ten, ready or not, here I come. And most of the time, Jenna would just pop out of her really horrible hiding place. Here I am, and I would act surprised, like, wow, I had no idea you were there, right? And then she, here's what she did. She did this every time. I love this so much. Then she would jump into my arms, okay, and immediately ask, is Jimmy lost? Is Jimmy lost? And I don't know why she asked it that way. Not where is Jimmy hiding, but is Jimmy lost? Anyways, the answer was no. Not to me he wasn't. Jimmy wasn't lost because I knew where he was hiding too. He wasn't lost, he was hiding. And I put Jenna on my hip and we pretend to search for, or I pretend to search for Jimmy. Well, Jenna, she just squealed with delight. She loves her brother so much. She just squealed with delight. Jimmy, come out, come out, wherever you are. You know, and I'd walk past him five times, you know, <laughs> knowing right where he's at. You see, Jenna was overjoyed to be found. And immediately, what does she want to do? Find Jimmy. Think about this. After the shepherd has found the one, he celebrates. This is all in Jesus' story. And then, what's he going to do? Jesus doesn't tell us. I think it is part of the genius of Jesus. He never finishes his stories. He never finishes stories. It's almost like he's saying, the end is up to you. The end is up to me. So how would you finish this story? What does the shepherd do after he finds the one and brings it back home and celebrates? Now, this is how I would finish the story. Because to me, it just seems obvious. I think the shepherd turns right back around and he goes out to see the 99 because they don't have a shepherd and all sheep without a shepherd are lost now here's the deal catch this if you hear nothing else this morning please hear this if the found one doesn't follow the shepherd to find the 99 guess what he's lost again so what does this story tell us about life? I think it tells us this. Point three, Kevin. What does this story tell us about life? I think it's this. Found people follow God. And here's the surprise. Found people follow God. But where to? Where is God going? Found people follow God. Finding the hiding. That's what they do. I love this retelling of life. I think it's at the very heart of the gospel. It is the very foundation of this community of faith. It is from the very beginning, we have believed that within the community of believers, there is this latent force that has not been unleashed on the world, and it's this. 
when we are found, what we do is we follow God, finding the hiding. We don't just sit at home and celebrate because we got found. That is not what church is for. Church is a mission to find the hiding. Not the lost. They're not lost. Nobody's lost. God knows where everybody's at. They're just hiding. I love this retelling so much. I think it is beautiful and brilliant, and it resonates with everything that's true and good about us. Think about it this way. When we're playing hide-and-seek, why did Jimmy come out of hiding? Why did he come out of hiding? It really wasn't about me. It wasn't about me, like, peeling back the drapes to see him with his feet sticking out underneath. I knew where he was. He would burst out of hiding after he couldn't take it anymore. He would, here I am. He comes out of hiding because of Jenna. Play this in your head. You've seen, you've seen an, a parent play hide-and-seek with two little kids. Why does the one come out of hiding? When Jimmy sees his found sister enjoying being with the seeker, it changes everything for Jimmy. He realizes that I'm hiding and I'm missing out. I, I, am, I am losing out on life. And it's Jenna's joy that's the key. Her life with me, with the seeker, the joy she has in being found, that's what draws Jimmy out. That's what makes, come out, come out, wherever you are, not a threat, but an invitation. I'm sorry, but religion and religious people just never give me that impression of God's story. They never did, and they still don't. Enjoying God, desiring God in this retelling and Jesus's retelling of who God is who we are and what life is for enjoying God desiring God delighting in God and his ways is not just like an option or a fringe benefit of following the shepherd and Jesus's retelling of God of life and of life itself it is our duty to delight in the beauty of God and life because that's what brings people out of hiding the reason that we try so hard and we don't always clear this bar but we try so hard to make our times together engaging entertaining enjoyable is because it's so important for us when we're together to embody the flourishing goodness the joyful life of God that is our mission together that is storylines story all of this i think is a massive radical surprising retelling of god's story in ours when we are found when we accept our acceptance when we stop hiding behind trying to be good enough fast enough smart enough accomplished enough moral enough religious enough if we'll come out of those hiding places and just accept that we're accepted right now we're sought after as we are, where we are, that God has come to us, that he sees us where we are hiding and still seeks after us. The only sane response is gratitude and joy. It's the joy of the found. What a story. Look, some of us keep waiting for our dreams to come true to bring us joy, like, oh, I hope my story turns out this way, then I'll be happy, then I'll have joy, but we actually have it upside down, we have it backwards, it's our joy in being found and in belonging that we bring with us into our story that makes life like a dream. Joy is not a consequence, it is a cause Joy is not something that you get when the circumstances change. Joy is what changes the way our circumstances impact us. This is why the Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. Found sheep have this joy, and they can't help but share it. In fact, that is the nature of joy. The nature of joy is that it must be shared. Found sheep want to 
find the hiding. In Jesus' story, in his meta-narrative, in this great retelling of God, life, and our lives, God is not a killjoy. He is a celebrating seeker. Life is not about keeping the rules. It is about enjoying God in life. And our life comes from the joy of being found and following the great finder who's out seeking the hiding. This is the story of God and life and my life that I'm holding on to. It's the only one that I believe can hold on to us, even in the worst of times. And it's the one that God is inviting us all into. All of these lines across my face Tell you the story of who I am So many stories of where I've been And how I got to where I am But these stories don't mean anything When you got no one to tell See the smile that's on my mouth. It's hiding the words that won't come out. All of my friends who think that I'm blessed, they don't know my head is a mess. No, they don't know who I really am, and they don't.
so good, Morgan. Thank you, thank you. We are in a storyline. It started before us, but it includes each and every one of us. We were made by God. We were made for God. That is the meta-narrative of life. And like all great stories, it just won't mean as much as it could until we share it. And, and that is what this is for, this life that we find ourselves in, somewhere between once upon a time and happily ever after. Do we want to be found? Do we want to take our place in God's story? Would we like our story to be retold? Well, then it's time for us to see we aren't lost. We're just hiding and respond to God's invitation. Come out, come out, wherever you are. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place and this opportunity to be together. We thank you that you are the good, seeking, celebrating shepherd. I pray that you would help us to see this week that whether we're with the crowd or by ourselves, that we're lost without you, that we're hiding from you. And I pray that you give us the faith and the courage to step out into the open and to be found and then to take that joy and to share it. I thank you for this community that is all about that and doing that together. As I pray that as we leave here this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.